Welcome to Immigration 360. On today's episode, we are going to discuss services available for immigrants arriving to the United States. With me, I have Diego Lopez. Diego is currently serving as a program manager at Casa Litas, which is a shelter located in Tucson, Arizona, and he has been working at Casa Litas since 2016. Diego maintains deep roots in the borderland community and over the last two years has been a key stakeholder in our U.S. border response. Since 2016, Diego has led programs at Casa Litas, the primary shelter partner in Tucson, Arizona. During that time, Diego was instrumental in successfully engaging a vast network of community and faith-based partners in academia to support Casalita's mission. Beyond his leadership at the shelter, Diego serves as a council aide for Tucson City Council. He is actively pursuing his PhD in public health at the University of Arizona and holds an MSW and an MPA from Arizona State University. Diego's undergraduate studies include a BA in theater education and religious studies from the University of Arizona. Welcome, Diego. Hi, Victoria. Thank you so much for having me here today. It's great to have you. So why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about Casalitas? Yeah, so Casalitas is a shelter that's been around in Tucson, Arizona since 2014. We started uh, grassroots, essentially working inside of a bus station. And it was community members in Tucson getting together and recognizing that families uh, were being dropped off at the bus station. When they started investigating, they found out that these were asylum seekers who, after being processed at the ports of entry, for example, Nogales, Arizona, which I know that you've been getting used to and seeing for quite some time, Mm -hmm. um, after going through the process at the port of entry, then being dropped off at the bus station, and then working to get to their sponsors across the U.S. But these volunteers, as they were noticing at the bus station back in 2014, where you would have sometimes a father, mother, and children presenting themselves at the port of entry, then having the husband being sent to detention as a form of deterrence. So separating the families back then and a mom and two kids dropped off of the bus station without knowing where you know the head of household, the breadwinner was, and, and oftentimes the one that was related to the sponsor, the person in the U.S. that they knew, separated. So it led to a lot of confusion and such for those families. From there, there was a surge of numbers, and the community members reached out to Catholic Community Services which then put together the Casalitas program, where we started at a small house until uh, for the last following several years. And then I got involved in 2016 as my field placement for my master's in social work. And my first two weeks at Alitas, a woman was dropped off who had a C-section, and immigration took away her medications. And here I was, 26 years old, Googling what a C-section was, then trying to find her a medication that was taken away from her. Then I'm trying to find a compression band for her stomach at Walmart. And then I'm trying to find a medical provider to get her more medicines. And then, you know, I kind of blacked out for a second and questioned, like, why is this all happening to, you know, the people who are fleeing for their lives for safety? And, you know, those are some of the continuous problems that we saw at Lita's. And then once we saw the Trump administration or the former administration coming on, we saw policies like uh, family separation being further implemented, MPP, Migration Protection Protocol, safe third countries, and so forth, decreasing the amount of asylum seekers allowed into the U.S., but sometimes leading to surges every so often. As the courts ruled, it is unconstitutional against international laws and relations with other countries that we have. From there, Casalitas has gone to or has moved into several locations. From that house, we went to a hotel, ran that a couple of times. 
um, to a, a monastery for about eight, nine months to where we are now at the Welcome Center, uh, where we work very closely with the county and the city, as well as other pop-up shelters across Tucson. But Casalitas has been very fortunate enough to have a strong ties with our city, county, uh, community in general for volunteers, and really the whole southern Arizona border working with different groups and making sure that we greet every asylum seeker as a guest because that's what they're truly our guests in our country who are trying to protect themselves and their family members. Yeah, thank you for that super in-depth description of Casalitas. Why don't we get into the different services that are available at Casalitas? Yeah, Casalitas, from the very beginning when I started, we had a lot of uh, unique services. One of the things that I love is kind of like what we're doing right now, sitting at this table, is being able to meet people at the table and work with each other and understanding where every person's at. You know, one thing I pride myself as a social worker, somebody with public health background, and just all around a humanitarian aid worker is recognizing that every person's unique and has special issues and needs. So every time a family comes through, we make sure to recognize what are their medical needs, what uh, physical or mental, uh, what kind of challenges are they facing and strengths that they're facing. You know, uh, we see about 11% of the families having some level of family separation. So trying to find out where their loved ones are either in detention centers or sent back to Mexico or being released in another day, or uh, medical needs. About 15% of our family members currently have medical issues, ranging anywhere of dehydration because of the summer months, to having cancer, broken arms, or other injuries due to violence from the cartels and so forth. We also provide, and kind of uh, rebuilding some of these programs too, ESL classes, art classes, just to let people relax and also learn a little bit more of what's going on in the U.S., and then provide every family with uh, food, uh, every meal, uh, showers, clothing, two sets of clothes, and an opportunity to really unwind and be treated and recognized, as I mentioned earlier, as a person, a unique person that they are. Wow, yeah. How many people work at Casaritas? You've mentioned a lot of different services that are provided, so I'm kind of wondering how many people are here staffed and how many people do you provide services for? You know, Alita's, when we first started, was all volunteers, as I mentioned earlier. Oh, and wow. we really can uh, try to stay with that kind of model as much as we can. Obviously, with the pandemic, things have changed, and we've been really fortunate. You know, for the longest time, it was two staff members and upwards to 1,500 volunteers registered, about 300 people coming in per day. Now, uh, after the pa- or dealing with the pandemic and adjusting, we have about nine staff members working on three different locations. As you know, in Nogales, mm-hmm. and our shelter there, two shelters here in Tucson, and then other administrative needs, like myself. And then every day, somewhere around 50 to 60 volunteers coming in and working here. Okay, wonderful. Going a little bit back to the services you provided, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about the ones related to health and go a little bit more in depth there. You know, and coming from a public health perspective, I imagine you know (laughs) that uh, everything falls in line of somebody's health, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, when we look at when families are coming in, I think the first thing is is recognizing, you know, the baseline of the mental health somebody's coming through. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes coming from DHS, they don't know where they're going. So the mental health and recognizing, you know, we are safe space. We are not people within DHS, Department of Homeland Security, that many of us are volunteers, the staff here also want to recognize your languages. About 20% of our guests speak indigenous languages. So trying to provide a level of language justice for those families that are coming through as well. But then, you know, we 
look at the mental health to then encourage the more physical and other emotional health issues to, to be addressed. So we have a team of medical providers here that work with the families um, depending on their needs and trying to connect them with resources across the U.S. when appropriate. But then we also have another team working with the county on providing COVID testing and vaccinations. Okay. So for every guest that comes through the shelter, we make sure that they have a COVID results within the last 24, 72 hours or provide testing on site and then additional COVID care if anyone tests positive. And then we also provide, as I mentioned earlier, of the mental health, a psychological support team using skills from PFA to address any other needs for the families and individuals, as well as I think one of the most critical things is giving people choices. You know, oftentimes choice is one of the first things that we have taken away from us. Mm -hmm. And giving a person choice allows for more growth, in my opinion, and also opportunity to then recognize, okay, this choice is right in front of me. Like outside my room, I see that there's a help desk. I can ask them for anything I need. You know, there's a level of expansion and opportunity for us to be out of the box thinking of like what other issues are out there that need to be addressed for somebody's public health or mental and physical health. Yeah, that's great. I really like the part about choices because it brings a feeling of empowerment too when so many things are out of your control, but you know, having choices as to what services you can access, that, that brings a little bit of control back into someone's life. So I, I think that's a great thing to include. Moving into needs that have been identified at Casalitas, what are kind of like the main needs that have been identified? I mean, you touched on this before, but looking at the perspective of someone who's migrating, what what stands out to you or what have you noticed? You know, some of the needs that we've identified with migrants as they're coming to our shelter really range yeah. and um, it can be very concerning and heart-wrenching at times. Mm -hmm. You know, many of times we've been seeing families who, a pregnant woman coming through the border and then their husband, because she's pregnant and it's not considered a born child, that husband being separated from, to, sent to detention because that's not a physical family from DHS perspective. Oh, so okay. having a pregnant woman coming to our shelter and then her husband or partner, family members, her sponsor that she's never met, puts her in a very unique bind and affects her mental health and her physical health mm -hmm. of a pregnant woman, right? We also see issues with medications taken away, as you might know, or many people know. It's against the law to bring medications across the border, especially when you're going through immigration. So when medications are not um, prescribed, Sometimes we find ourselves in a unique situation of playing detectives and trying to find the right medication for somebody, which can be very challenging in the sense of seizure medication, cancer medication, and also recognizing some medications do not exist in the U.S. as they exist in other countries. Yeah. Also, I think the language justice is another huge one, mm. you know, but uh, identifying the uniqueness that every person, as I mentioned earlier, coming through the shelter is the same as, you know, everyone that you invite to your house for Thanksgiving. You know, everyone has some uh, unique needs and desires, and, you know, we try to meet, meet them where they're at with that. I like that analogy. <laughs> Thank you. I just came up with it, actually. <laughs> it works. <laughs> so transitioning to your own personal experience working at Casalitas, what have your biggest takeaways been? Well, um, that's a good question. I think the first one is that, like, analogy that I just said is, like, the Thanksgiving dinner is everyone's different and unique. I think, you know, it's so easy for us to get so bogged down by trying to be, like, most effective and try to get people out as fast as possible and not recognize that we should be giving people a level of, you know, 
service and dignity in everything that we do. I also recognize where the challenges are, where the numbers go higher and how to kind of pivot and do those adjustments. I also think working so much with volunteers has made me a better person and has uh, challenged me on my patience at times as well as recognizing it's like you don't have to do something. You know, I uh, was a high school teacher before doing this job mm -hmm. and I remember like telling students it's like you always have a choice. You don't actually have to be here and this or that. And there's so much, uh, so much beauty in seeing so many people from across uh, Tucson or, and of really the United States coming here and volunteering and knowing that they don't have to do it, but they recognize is a couple of generations ago, their families might have been migrants or legacy that they want the U.S. to have for other generations to look forward to. And I think, you know, we're in a very interesting time in this country. Mm -hmm. uh, and I often reflect in some of my meetings is you know, where are you sitting in relation to, to asylum right now and migration? Because, you know, historically we've been a country that has accepted people and then pulled the rug under, out of people, you know, under people and so forth. And when we're looking at your kids and your life, you want to say that you were doing something or turning away sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Like what role did you play in that moment? Yeah, what role did you play in this moment? Yeah, I like that perspective. For the audience, what is something that you would like the audience to know about working with people who have migrated from Latin America? You know, I actually want to start off with saying is like asylum and uh, migration is not, we often, we often think it's just from Central America and so forth, but I've seen people from across the world, uh, worked with people from Russia, Romania, India, Cameroon, Congo. Just the other day, a Canadian person came through the shelter. And I think to myself, there's challenges all around the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how do we respond and adjust to that? And I think when we look at Central America, specifically since we're where we see most of our families here, about 60% are coming from Guatemala, is how, how is our relationship as the U.S. affecting these countries and so forth? You know, I often in meetings discuss that there are several points in immigration that we have to look at to improve the situation for families and individuals. The first is in the home countries, mm -hmm. is what are going, what's going on and um, pushing people out of the home countries and pulling people, frankly, to the United States and other countries to go to. Then followed by what is the, uh, what is the travel like for families? And I know there was a report in one of our local newspapers on the death toll of people crossing the border because of these policies we've been seeing, like Title 42 within the last several years has increased the amount of people dying uh, because there's an expectation that Title 42 will be lifted, but we've been, you know, on a stall and we might see the higher, the most uh, largest amount of people being coming through in a summer months history, in his known history, yeah. which is one of the most dangerous times to travel through the desert, right? I mean, we have weather topping 115 uh, right now in Tucson and other areas of the, of the desert, which is terrifying to imagine a mother and children trying to cross in some regions of the border in that way. Yeah. Then I would say, you know, so the journey across Mexico, then there are situations on the border, you know, the processing within DHS where we saw back in November of last year about 1,500, no, 15,000, I'm sorry, unaccompanied minors being sent back um, to Mexico without any families and so forth under the previous administration. But then at the same time, you know, right now we're struggling on finding adequate housing or spacing for these families within OR and other spaces mm. because 
there needed to be more identified funding and resources and build up to take care of these families and kids in these situations. So at the border policies and practices, as well as um, once they get to their destinations. You know, to get a worker's visa, you have to go through your for- first court hearing, which right now takes anywhere between three to six months. Oh, wow. And then you have to wait another six months to a year to file for the worker's visa and then uh, pay $550 when this whole time you're not allowed to work. And then you wait for that card to come in when during the last administration they closed one of the two sites that make these cards for people to have worker visas. So you think about those factors and a family or an individual you know, you're almost essentially saying uh, one to two years of not working and, and living with a sponsor who is taking the, the toll of you living there. As they seek asylum As status, they seek correct? asylum, yeah. correct. Okay. So somebody, uh, the, one of the most basic needs that everyone has of safety and fleeing for, your, for you and your family, we've put them in a, a, a situation, in a condition where I don't think I could make it, you know, mm-hmm. if I was following the rules and so forth. So how do we look at all four of those areas in the home country? immigrating through the Mexico at our border and once they're in the U.S. and how do we improve it to be the most equitable situation and safe situation that if we were the shoe was on the other foot that we would be feeling comfortable and safe going through. Mm -hmm. Going off of that what would you recommend to the audience to be more informed? You know I think reading is always good. Mm -hmm. I think going out and finding uh, good books, you know, The uh, the Devil's Highway is an excellent book to read, but reading, learning more about what is going on on the borders, one thing, either news clippings or books. Um, You can go on casalitas.org, and we have a list of books there, as I mentioned, The Devil's Highway. I would also say learning more and encouraging senators and congresspeople to vote on issues that will support shelters like Casalitas and others, mm-hmm. and funding. You know, when I first started, everything was hand-to-mouth, meaning it was all donations-based. Mm-hmm. And now there's some level of FEMA funding, but we need more resources than that, as well as encouraging uh, and voting for policies that will improve migration. You know, we often talk about, like, one-issue voters. Yeah. And very few to know people, I think, ever vote on the issue of migration. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's the cornerstone of our country. We have a Statue of Liberty. It's one of the first things people see when they're coming in from Europe to our country. But we don't really take in consideration what, it, you know, what kind of beacon we want to be in the world. Mm-hmm. And what do, do we want to have exported in perception of this country? And I think that's a huge thing for us to take in consideration as well. So those would be the areas, I think, would be gaining knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, using casalitas.org's website to find resources to then um, encourage your senators and congresspeople to vote on issues and then find out how you can volunteer and work in your own communities for migrants and refugees to improve their experience and making sure that they have an opportunity to thrive. Yeah. Wonderful options. We discussed a lot of topics, discussed a little bit about the needs identified among migrants who are receiving services at Casalitas, your personal experiences and your perspective. Is there anything else you would like to add before we conclude the interview for today? I'm always a big fan for people to, you know, find. I was very fortunate enough that I was able to find this kind of work for myself mm-hmm. where I, I, you know, I can wake up every day and feel like I'm doing something, you know. And oftentimes I think people you know, just settle with things and don't recognize, 
the opportunity that we have to really try to make the difference in somebody else's lives. And I think sometimes it's uncomfortable and scary. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I'm in a meeting or I'm making a decision where I worry about the ramifications and so forth. Mm-hmm. But I realize it's like if I put everything on the table to help somebody else and, you know, listen to other people's perspectives, work with this amazing team of volunteers, community members and groups across the country, you know, we can do a significant changes for others. And I think we oftentimes get so discouraged when we turn on the news and hear X, Y, and Z's plummeting and the world's about to turn into fire and this and so forth. But if you take a step back and really think about what you want to do and what you want to be known for, I think, you know, we, we live in an amazing time. You know, I, I'm now thinking about the musical Hamilton, oddly enough, <laughs> where, you know, like this is an amazing time to be alive. And I think we can always treat every day like that. But you and everyone else has to make the decision of, you know, are we going to look at it like that? And are we going to look at the opportunity that our life gives us to, to do the best that we can, you know, to try to make somebody else's life better, not necessarily our own. So that's the last thing I want to say there. The great answer. I love that. Before we conclude today's episode, we would like to include a concrete action item for the audience to take. I know Diego mentioned a lot of ways to get information such as reading, staying informed with the news, diversifying where you hear information about immigration. But we want to leave you with one concrete action item. Diego, do you want to go ahead and explain what you would like the audience to do to be more involved? I wanted them to do all three of those things for me. <laughs> um, I'll encourage you to go on our website and see some of the stories and look at other pages and, and read the, some of the stories of families and so forth. And think about what you and your family would be doing if you were in the same situation that these families are often leaving and put yourself in somebody else's shoes because these shoes have traveled thousands of miles mm-hmm. and hardly experienced a lot of tears. The people are hovering above those shoes. Yeah, that's a great discussion topic. But yeah, I like that action item. Just want to conclude by saying thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And thanks to the audience for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Take care, everybody. <laughs>